Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast version, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. You can also find information about my talk show appearances and any new book projects at MarlenePardo.com or go to Amazon and look up my author profile as Marlene Pardo Pelliser. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and also listen to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for Scary Storytelling, Nightshade Diary for Classic Horror and Adventure Stories, and of course, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests as we talk about the mysteries of the unexplained. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy theories, and just about anything that is plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. The Curse of the 27 Club The 27 Club is a death list of actors, musicians, artists, and athletes who have died at the age of 27. The majority have died as a result of suicide, substance abuse, homicides, and strange accidents. Many claim their significance to the number of their age, to Illuminati and occult groups. It all started with Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison died between 1969 and 1971. What they all shared was that they had died at the age of 27. When Kurt Cobain died in 1994, at the same age and with the introduction of the internet and instant media, the idea of the 27 Club gained traction. There was a history of suicide in Cobain's family. Two uncles and his great uncle all killed themselves. However, it was Kurt's age that was significant. In 2011, Amy Winehouse, 27, died from alcohol poisoning, even though she had a history of bulimia and substance abuse. Her family had feared her committing suicide due to these factors. Ironically, Amy had expressed fear of becoming part of this club. One of the last to be included in the group is Anton Yelchin, Star Trek Beyond actor, who died at age 27. On June 19, 2016, he was fatally pinned by his car after it rolled down the steep driveway of his L.A. home. He was found pressed in between his brick mailbox and security fence. Why is 27 an important number to occultists? The cube is the perfect representation of the number 27. It is sacred to Satanists and Saturnists and included in worldwide rituals that outsiders are unaware of. These ceremonies are practiced in secret at the highest level of church and state. There are 27 chapters in the Bible's New Testament. There are 27 letters in the Kabbalah, 27 channels to God, and 27 names for God. 
Dates or seasons are important when practicing occult rituals. During the spring solstice of 2016, Joan Lore, better known as China, died from a drug overdose. Prince died on April 21st, and the Queen of England, when visiting Washington, D.C., announced Prince William and not her son Charles would inherit the throne. Was another secret sacrifice to Baal offered on June 19th? A Russian-born Jewish actor would have been of special interest to the Hollywood Mongols because of his first name. Anton happens to be that first of the founder of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey. Conspiracy theorists suggest that throughout Jalchin's films, there were clues of his planned sacrifice, embedded in cryptic words and images that only Hollywood elite devil worshippers understand. This is a world that operates below the surface, which laughs at the stupidity of the masses. Or were they just coincidences? Anton's first starring role was in the 2001 film Hearts in Atlantis, which was released barely two weeks after the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers. Prior to this, he had small parts in Along Came a Spider. Anton plays Bobby, who as an adult remembers himself when he was 11 years old, which was 40 years in the past. The song Ain't That a Shame plays in the background. The main character is Ched Pradigan, played by Anthony Hopkins. He comes from parts unknown and hires Bobby to read the newspapers to him since he claims his eyesight is very poor. They develop a strong relationship. As the film progresses, it becomes obvious that Ted is highly psychic, apparently seeing much more than he could even with his regular eyes. This includes a person's darkest secrets. He confronts the school bully with his knowledge stopping him from picking on Bobby. He is also aware that Bobby's mother is self-absorbed and selfish. She feels burdened bringing up her son by herself since Bobby's father died when he was five years old. Her dark secret is that she was raped at a convention after she was duped into attending, using her humanity against her. Ted warns Bobby about the low men that wear dark clothing hats and travel in dark cars. They are coming for him and cast long shadows. He has something they want very much. He tells Bobby that he'll know they're in town when he sees ads posted for lost dogs. Who do they represent? Men in black, spiritual men in white, or henchmen for the New World Order? Ted warns Bobby, they'll be coming after you too. Ted also recognizes that Bobby has special abilities, such as that he was able to beat a swindler at an amusement park with his mind powers. He recognizes the same power in Bobby's friend, played by Mika Borum. In one scene, Ted asks Bobby, do you know what's going on around you? The boy replies, I won't let the boogeyman get you. They laugh. References to death are unmistakable throughout the film. Eventually, Bobby, played by Anton, sees posters for lost dogs posted on telephone poles, and he knows the low men are near and looking for Ted. He witnesses 
when they hustle Ted into the back seat of a car and drive away with him. This takes place in a dark alley with bright neon pawn shop signs in the background. Was Bobby a pawn? Are we all pawns? Bobby leaves the town soon after. He never sees Ted again and loses contact with his girlfriend. He returns 40 years later to find out she has died. He meets her daughter, Molly, and he gives her a photo he had of her mother, which he always carried with him. In it, she had butterfly wings. This is a well-known symbol for MK Ultra mind control. Disguised as an innocuous insect known for transformation, it's frequently seen on album covers, celebrity clothing, and publicity photos. In flashbacks, Bobby narrates and says, That summer was the last summer of my childhood. Ted gave me an enduring gift. He made me open my eyes and let the future in. I wouldn't have missed a minute of it. Not for anything in the world. What did the film mean on deeper levels? Masonic symbols and ideas and clues to an utterly magical world of transcendence were seen everywhere. Disney would be very proud. Ted's last message to the boy in the alley as he was whisked away by the cosmic police or whatever was the hand. Five fingers pressed upon the back window of the car. It's a sign to Bobby or to young actor Anton Yalchin. Insiders know it as a death sign. The film ends with Bobby getting what he wants, his Schwinn bike. He rides into the distance on a lone country road with a lot of woods on either side, symbolic of the future. Are celebrities fully aware of their choices and repercussions of their decisions and make the dark choices anyway? Unspeakable and the most depraved actions as willing slaves will be required of them. This is done in order to blackmail them as well as to corrupt those who were not willing until then. They commit murders called sacrificers or blood oath rituals in exchange for golden opportunities. Prior to his breakout Star Trek film, Anton Yelchin played the lead in Charlie Bartlett. In 2002, Yelchin played a child in the TV miniseries produced by Steven Spielberg, Taken. In 2003, Anton appeared in an episode of Without a Trace. There's a common theme of lost or missing children, symbolic for those in the industry or for those trafficked for elites and pedo rings. In 2004, he played Jack in the TV movie Jack and in the House of D. In 2005, he worked in the movie Fierce People. The following is a blurb for it. Finn, played by Anton Yelchin, is a teenager trying to escape his drug-addicted mother, Diane Lane, by going to study tribal people. His hopes are dashed when he gets caught scoring drugs for her, and she decides to start their lives over by moving them in with their massage client, billionaire Ogden, played by Donald Sutherland. At first, Finn indulges in the luxury around him and falls for Ogden's granddaughter, played by Kristen Stewart but he soon finds that the rich can be more savage than any group in the wild. Is this the dark side of the Hollywood industry, symbolized by the Sutherland character? Once more, the character indulges himself in the luxury of the leaks, like Kubrick, 
only to be sadly disappointed in the truth behind it all. In 2006, he worked in Alpha Dog, a deeply disturbing portrayal of murder loosely based on a real case. Were these his choices for roles, or was he told to do them? The idea being that as a rich slave, you bring in others underneath you, much like a pyramid scheme, a casting couch, or gang initiation, or awful hazing of forced violence and homosexual acts among young toughs show who's in charge and that all must do the bidding of the master. This is what happens in Hollywood and what the price of fame is. It is not mentioned out in the open publicly, but the truth is disguised in plain sight and called drama. In the film Alpha Dog, when the youths are taking the clueless boy played by Anton to his death, Anton says, My parents are going to kill me when I get back. Another disassociation with parents and everything moral and right. Were the signs of his murder purposely placed in his films? Take his 2013 film, Odd Thomas, where there's a scene where he is almost pinned by a black jeep. In 2014, Anton starred in a film called Rudderless, similar to a film he did in 2015 titled The Driftless Area. This is the blurb for it. When a man returns to his hometown after his parents die, he becomes involved in a dangerous situation with a woman and a violent criminal. Anton ordered the character Pierre thumbs a ride in a country road from a man that unbeknownst to him is a criminal. Pierre carries a symbolic rose bush. They soon fight in the cabin of the truck. The criminal takes the roses and drives off. Pierre throws a rock, knocks him out, and the truck crashes off the road. Inside he finds a bag full of money and takes it. Predictably, the criminal searches for his money. A song comes on the radio with hidden relevance. But a man can't face himself. Too much guilt to hide. I wish I could be free. This never-ending life, but the risk of losing face makes the price much too high. So I'll go on living the big lie. The big lie. The character Pierre falls into a deep, water-filled well. He is trapped overnight, seemingly about to die. He is saved by Stella, played by Zoe Deschanel. Stella is an odd character who lost her memory after being in a fire. She begins a weird relationship with Pierre by telling him that since she saved his life, he now owes her. Stanley Kubrick confessed to having witnessed a murder by the elites of the world. Are we viewing similar symbols in the Driftless area? In Yelchin's 15-year film career, he is always the nice guy, the victim. His characters always seem to be on the road to death. Did this mirror his real life? Later in the film, we realize Stella is strange because she is a ghost. She died in the fire. At the end, Pierre is killed in the woods, and he is led into the light by whatever Stella had become. Another film that ended with Anton's character dying. In 2015, he co-starred with Patrick Stewart in a low-budget movie titled Green Room. This was a strange choice for Stewart, who was known for theatrical Shakespeare before his role as Captain Jean-Luc Picard. In the story, Stewart, 
owns a club and a punk band who played their witness of violent murder. They were not going to shut up about it. Inevitably, the character played by Anton and his bandmates are slated for death by Stuart and his henchmen. Another role with a character marked for death. Yelchin's other co-star was Jonathan Jackson. Both Jackson and Yelchin portrayed Kyle Reese, a character in the Terminator movie, at separate times. Another word for being killed is being terminated. Did Yelchin die at the hands of a machine like the fictional Kyle Reese? Was that role another foreshadowing of how Anton would meet his strange end? Considering the title of the film, The Green Room, you can ask yourself the significance of it. There is none. Within the context of the film, that is. Green rooms are waiting rooms where the actor waits before the performance. Is this a reminder that actors work and get money at the behest of their handlers? The answers are extremely complex and rarely ever simple. They are hard to see or understand. I think there are enough clues and coincidences to be suspicious that devious things truly happen beneath the two-dimensional, innocent, fake surface of film celluloid. In 2010, Randy Quaid, an Oscar-nominated star, fled to Canada from the U.S. after claiming he was on a hit list of a group of mysterious killers known as Star Whackers. The following are a few disturbing and odd fictional stories. I made a terrible mistake. Ten years ago, on July 1st, I was 17. I was a stupid kid, just out of my junior year in high school. I had friends. I was somewhat popular. I had little stress in my life, and I was a fucking idiot. Seriously, a real fucking idiot. I'm from a small town, like 500 people small, middle-of-nowhere kind of place. Still, a ton of gravel roads all over the place. I swear, half the farms on the outskirts of town still aren't on the grid. So you can imagine the kind of things we did for fun. Drinking, cow tipping, that sort of thing. We were young and dumb, bored teenagers with nothing else to do but cause havoc and be idiots. You know how it goes. I grew up with my dad, the alcoholic bastard. He was abusive for a time until he learned I could not only take his weak-ass punches, but also deliver them back to him twice as hard. I was a pretty big kid then. I spent a lot of time with my friends, Rob and Dave, and spent quite a lot of time away from home because of how bad my dad was. Looking back, I don't blame him. Well, I do, but my mom's death really messed him up. He never drank before she died. I think he blamed himself for it, for us being so poor, for us being stuck in a shit-ass small town. I know he hated it as much as I did. Didn't give him the right to take his frustrations out of me, but it is what it is. My mom died from cancer when I was four. I guess she was diagnosed soon after I was born, and it was a slow decline. She didn't have insurance, and this was during the time when Pre-existing conditions meant you were fucked. I don't remember her. I only know her from pictures. When she was healthy and vibrant. Since I didn't have a computer, I did what most kids did. Hung out with friends. In later years, I learned about the tech world. 
and while I may not be in the thick of it, I know enough to make my way around and get shit done. Back then though, Xboxes were for the rich assholes and my days were spent in the woods, fishing in the creek or swimming with friends. I'm going to miss it. That summer, I was heavy into mythology and something I've always been absolutely fascinated with was the idea of crossroads deals. The whole Faustian was just too cool. Sell your soul and in exchange you get some kick-ass skill that you can use to do whatever you want with. I'm sure most people know the crossroads myth from Supernatural, which is actually what first got me interested in it. And that's sort of where my story starts. On the night of July 1st, my friends and I were really bored. So the three of us decided to go to the local cemetery on the edge of town and dig around. Remember how I said I'm from a small town and how there's fuck all to do in a small town? It was about 10 o'clock when we got there. And we started drinking crappy beer and digging around. We did knock over tombstones. We were teenagers, but we weren't disrespectful. At least not when it came to the dead. The dead can't defend themselves. So if you fuck with someone's grave, you're giving yourself some bad juju. We just walked around, shooting the shit, when the subject turned to the crossroads legend. Being drunk at that point, my friends dared me to do it. At first, I didn't want to, being drunk and paranoid, but peer pressure got the best of me. So I told my friend Rob, to go get me a few things. I won't list them here, because no matter how many disclaimers you put on something stupid you do to prevent other people from doing it themselves, they're going to do it anyway. Monkey see, monkey do, I guess. It was 11.45 by the time we got back, and I was able to get the box and order and start digging. As I began to dig, I could feel my heart starting to pound, was I scared? Yeah, and drunk, but alcohol tends to steal the nerve. So I pushed on, my friends chugging their beers on the side of the road, watching me work at the gravel. Automobile travel wasn't heavy on the road, but it wasn't light either, so it's not surprising that it took a good 10 minutes or so before I was able to make a large enough hole. I was exhausted by the end of it, and as I slowly lowered my tin box in the hole, my hands were shaking. I scooped the dirt back over, it stood back up and waited. For minutes, only the crickets could be heard. The moon, full and bright, was clear in the sky, no clouds in sight. After a minute, my friend started to laugh and had headed back to the cemetery. I was going to join them, but I found I couldn't. I was rooted to the spot in the middle of the crossroads unable to move. I wasn't afraid. Yeah, maybe. I was a little worked up, but I wasn't in fight or flight mode or anything else that would make someone unable to move like that. I was just unable to talk or move. That's when the clouds rolled in. It was bright one second, then the next, this dark cloud. No, it wasn't like the demon smoke and supernatural, more like a really pregnant rain cloud, came out of nowhere blocked the moonlight. It threw everything into inky darkness. No street lights, no car lights, nothing. Even the crickets had stopped chirping. I couldn't hear my friends, and I couldn't turn to look that way. I couldn't yell, 
I couldn't scream. I couldn't do a damn thing. Suddenly, I heard footsteps behind me from the direction of the cemetery, and that was when it broke. I jumped like someone shot a gun behind me and rushed toward the edge of the road. I turned around and was surprised by what I saw. Most people think the devil is right and carries a pitchfork and has horns and a forked tail, but it's not true. He's just a normal guy, 6'2", maybe. Nice business suit. Looked like he just came from a sales conference in Duluth. I remember he was wearing a red bow tie. I didn't know it was the devil, not at the time. You've likely guessed it by now, so I won't bore you with guesswork. That's stupid. We don't have time for it anyway. Who are you? I asked him, shaking. You know who I am, he said. A smile on his face. I called out for my friends, but they were nowhere to be seen. They're gone, he said. I sent them home. You what? I sent them home. I started backing up again, and he started matching my steps. When I felt the tall grass and flowers around my legs, I stopped, knowing that I'd fall if I went any further, and being on my ass with this guy towering over me didn't sound like a fun prospect. Suddenly he smiled wider and clapped his hands. So, you summoned me? What? Oh, come now. We both know what you did, and we both know why. So tell me, what do you want? I don't know who you are, but my friends are over there. And Rob, he's got a phone. All I have to do is scream, and he'll call the cops. He took another step toward me then stopped and laughed, but his eyes never moved off of me. I sent them home. At this, I looked around wildly, searching for some sign of my friends, but I knew he was right. I don't have a lot of time here, kid. It's been a while, and the rules are kind of strict, so the sooner we get this done, the sooner I can enjoy it up here before I gotta go back, so let's go. Tell me what you want. I started stepping sideways then, trying to get to the other road. Tell me what you want first, he sighed. I don't have time for this, Philibabua. Before I knew it, he was right in front of me. I didn't even blink. He just moved that fast. Six inches from me, no less. I could smell rot on him, like he was hiding raccoon carcasses underneath his suit. If you don't tell me what you want, I'll get it out of you. I can do that, too. I can do a lot of things, you know. I was frozen. How do you know my name? Oh, I know a lot of things about you. But that doesn't matter right now. I can make you a legend. You know I can. Want to be a rock star? That smile was still on his face. It was seriously starting to creep me out. I don't want anything from you. Yes, you do. Everyone does. He smiled wider. It contorted its face into something sinister. Big teeth flashed, white as the moon, and he took another step towards me, which I countered by taking another step to the side. Then he stretched out, grabbed my arm, and it burned. Burned like hell. He looked at me searchingly, the smile gone. You don't want fame or power or money, he said, after a few seconds. I wrenched my arm from his grasp. 
I was on the verge of tears. It hurt so much and scrambled back even further. Shut up, I yelled. Shut your fucking mouth, you fuck ass. I turned and ran down the road as fast as I could, not looking behind me, not caring. I was scared out of my mind, and that fight or flight response had finally kicked in. That's when I knew what he was or who he was, what he wanted, something I learned at night. Once you summon him, he's going to make a deal, whether you want to or not. As I ran, I could hear him behind me, laughing. Then he yelled, You can't escape me, Philibabua. And suddenly he was in front of me. I didn't even have the time to stop. I ran flat into him, and the force of it knocked the wind out of me and laid me on my ass. He grabbed my shirt. No skin this time, thank God, but it still burned five nice finger-sized holes in it and pulled me close. I know what you want, and you're going to get it. Enjoy your ten years. And then he threw me down to the ground and was gone. As you can imagine, I was terrified. I pissed myself then. As I hurriedly made my way back to the cemetery parking lot, I saw it was empty. I was forced to walk home. A good three miles at 1230 at night. My pants soaked, but I didn't care. The whole walk home, I tried to tell myself that I had just hallucinated, but I knew it was a lie. I knew it. I opened my front door an hour later, tired, exhausted, terrified, and sore. Hi, sweetie. I heard as I reached for the light switch. I flicked it and stared at a woman sitting on the couch. My jaw dropped. Mom? The devil always gets his due, they say, or something like that, but what they don't say is he's sneaky as fuck. Ten years ago, I met the devil at a crossroads outside a cemetery in my bumfuck little town. The past few days, I've been hearing things, seeing things, things that I know aren't real, can't be real, things that come straight from the depths of hell. Ten years ago, I didn't make a deal with the devil, but he made one with me. That's what he wants, he gets. Except I didn't make the deal. I didn't. And you all know it. Anyway, on that fateful night, 10 years ago, my mother, who had died from cancer, some 13 years prior, was sitting on the couch. My jaw dropped and I spent the next day talking to her, trying to wrap my head around what had happened. The devil had told me he knew what I wanted. And he was right. I wanted my mother back to help protect me from my abusive father. And there she was, in the flesh. I spent so much time in disbelief thinking I'd wake up from a horrible nightmare, that I'd be plunged back into that miasma that had become my life. But I wasn't, and she stayed healthy, alive. But my dad was in as much disbelief as I was. But, like me, he came to accept it. A miracle from God above, he called it. We both made sure it was her. After the shit at the crossroads went down, I wasn't putting anything past anything, but it was her, through and through. My dad knew a lot more about her than I did, and if her coming back was good enough for him, it was good enough for me. The abuse stopped. He had the love of his life back, and who the hell 
was he to argue with that? For all he knew, it was God at work. Ha! Gotta love the irony here. I won't bore you with the past ten years. Life changed, and I was happy. I finished high school, went to a local community college for a couple of years to be near mom, then found a decent job in the city about an hour away. It was nice. I lived in the city, but visited my parents as often as I could. The deal was all but gone from my mind, and I was truly, truly happy. But the devil always gets his due. I shouldn't have forgotten that. A week ago, I got a call from mom. Dad was acting funny, paranoid, jumpy. My dad's an ex-marine, if I haven't mentioned that, so for him to get spooked is pretty off. I took some time off work and stayed with him a few days to give my dad a sense of normalcy. I guess I don't know, mom told me to. We hung out, worked in the yard, and he was so much different. He used to be great, then mom died, then he was a dick. Then, when she came back, he was better, and now he wasn't any of those things. Pale, scared, jumped at crickets for fuck's sake. There wasn't anything I could do. We worked in the yard, we played games, we drank together, we shot the shit, but he was always jumpy, always looking over his shoulder. I wish he had told me sooner. When I realized there wasn't anything I could do, I told mom I had to get back home, back to work. And while she understood, I knew she didn't like it, but I didn't have a choice. My paycheck wasn't large, and my job was far from secure, if you catch my drift. It was a miss-too-much-work-get-fired kind of gig, so I hopped back in my car and drove home. It was that night my hallucination started. I kept seeing black dogs everywhere, and I knew what they were. That night had never left my mind never left my heart. I started hearing voices, and they say something truly god-awful shit to me. I took it the best I could. I drank a lot. Been drinking a lot. Hell, I'm drunk now. I have to be to handle this shit. Fucking A. This is going to come out jumbled, but I don't care. I gotta get it down while it's fresh. The hallucinations, the voices... They kept saying I was going to die. I was going to hell that Satan himself would flay the skin from my bones. Can you imagine? Driving down the highway 1130 at night hearing, clear as day mind you, like someone sitting in the back seat yelling in your ear, the Lucifer himself is going to skin you alive and make you watch as he gorges on your skin. Yeah, that's the shit I've dealt with. The past few nights. Thank God they did start sooner. There's that irony again. This is hard to talk about. It's not what, it's not at all what I expected. When I got home, I knew that what I was hearing was in my head, that what I was seeing, brutal though it was, wasn't actually real. And shit, man, the things I saw, the things I saw would give Eli Roth nightmares. I mean, it's almost too much, but I'm not going to lie. I walked into my house and saw every one of my friends hanging up meat hooks, dangling from the ceiling upside down, dripping blood out of their eyes, their nose, their mouth, fingernails ripped off, blood everywhere, 
I screamed, shut my eyes, and when I opened them, they were gone. Nothing. Fuck that. I turned on the TV because what the hell am I supposed to do? Except the dialogue was like a poorly dubbed Japanese film. The actress lips moved, but all I heard was shit about how I was going to die. How I was going to hell, burning, always burning for eternity. I had to shut it off. Radio, same thing. Except they sang the shit to me. Even Black Sabbath, my favorite band. Even their music turned into something that would make your skin crawl. I stayed home the past few days. Fuck it, my job didn't matter, right? I was dead anyway. Not just dead, doomed to eternity and hell dead. You don't get much more boned than that, so I shut myself in my room as the voices got louder and louder, going from a whisper to a shout to a scream, then two, then four, then a dozen or more, and I lost it. I started screaming back because what the hell else am I supposed to do? I know, I used it twice, but you gotta understand just how at a loss I was. I mean, I'm still reeling, but now it's for a different reason. Up until five minutes ago, I was seeing shit out my window. I was seeing my friends as zombies trying to claw their way into my room. I saw my mom burning alive right there on my bed and I was paralyzed. I cried. I still have tears running down my cheeks. See, 15 minutes ago at midnight, the screaming stopped. Everything stopped. Five minutes ago, I got a call from mom. Felipe your your dad, he, he's dead. Her voice was dead too, completely flat. No emotion, like someone who's still reeling from something tragic. What? How? I, I don't know, he just stopped breathing. One minute we were on the couch watching a movie and the next he wasn't breathing. I tried CPR. I called the paramedics. They arrived in minutes, but they said he was gone. Gone! She started sobbing uncontrollably, and that was when I saw him. Hello, Flibabua. I dropped the phone and spun around to see the same 6'2 guy who looked like the Minnesota sales guy standing in my room. The voices had stopped. The zombies had stopped assaulting me. It was quiet, and then there he was. What the fuck, man, I yelled. Here to take me finally? Good. Give my mom the goddamn double bear, you piece of shit. My dad just fucking died, you asshole. So go ahead, take me. I was sobbing at that point. He flashed those big pearly whites of his. Oh, I'm not taking you. I don't need to. In fact, I never did. You see, when you summoned me and said you weren't going to make the deal with me, well, I was pissed. Pissed. But a deal's a deal, even in hell. And you didn't make one with me, so what was I to do? I knew what you wanted, your mom alive, and your dad dead. Well, it just took me ten years to deliver on that second bit. I shook my head. What the fuck are you talking about? I shouted. You don't get it. All right. I'll spell it out for you. I only have so long up here. When I get summoned... I get an hour to make a deal. Them's the rules. After an hour, I go back under. Ten years later, I get to come back and collect on the debt. Except, well, 
you never made the deal. So why are you here? I interrupted. Think, dumbass, he said, then chuckled. Come on, put two and two together. I looked at him for a second, and then it hit me. You made the deal with my dad? He laughed. Yup. You summoned me, so I had a little power over you. Figured I'd let you squirm a bit. Ain't I just a dick? He laughed at that point. I was shaking so bad. Hell, I still am. But yeah, I paid your old man a visit, and he was happy as a can of peaches to have his wife back. Take my soul. I don't care. Just bring her back. He fucking begged me. Flib begged. So I obliged you. You pissed me off. But now the debt's paid, so have a good life. Enjoy it. And then he was gone. I guess I'm not going to be joining that club after all. The 27 Club.